gospel lesson comes to us as the very last passage in the good news according to St. Matthew, 28th chapter. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the gospel of our Lord. Yesterday I drove a little bit north of the city with my wife to meet some friends, and we were walking through a nature preserve, and uh, we thought we were alone, and all of a sudden a gentleman with a giant pirate hat jumped up out of the willows and scared us, and then we realized there were all sorts of people popping up in costume, and I was reminded that it's the weekend before Halloween. Uh, How many of you have or will celebrate in some fashion, whether on purpose or not, you're just dragged into it? Who's like going to have a costume office party? Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay, almost all of you. All right. So we know it's Halloween season. It's a a big big thing here in New York City. In fact, when I first visited New York and was thinking about moving here after seminary with my wife, we came on Halloween weekend and got to experience what what wonderful chaos it can be. Uh, Anybody go to a haunted house this year? You went to one. My son went to one. I didn't even know about it. Anybody else? Anyone been to a haunted house before? Come on. All right. Well, there's this unique kind of haunted house I want to tell you about. Uh, I was with these friends yesterday, my wife and I, and they're about our age, and we... They are from, uh, I believe, Georgia, but definitely down in the deep south. My wife is from Mississippi, and I, I spent some of my childhood in Texas. And so we were all familiar with this unique phenomenon of a certain kind of haunted house. Uh, I'm going to describe someone who is, is just a normal, normal human being, normal, normal American, writing an article, and found himself at one of these haunted houses in Texas, no less. I'm just going to describe it to you for a second. Uh, hold your breath. My group of 25, guests of all ages, including many teenagers, begins with an evening hayride across the gigantic campus of Tyler Metro Church. Deposited at the edge of the woods, we disembark, the anxious, giggling teenagers clearly feeling the frisson of haunt season. We march up a semi-lit path dotted with the seasonally appropriate decorations of fake tombstones, animal skeletons, even a Michael Myers mannequin. Suddenly, a chainsaw-wielding maniac comes roaring out of the woods and chases us toward a shack. We, we quickly filter through the door and away from the murder as the group's screams dissolve into laughter. Now we find ourselves in a large room bathed in menacing crimson. A man sits in the middle of the room in an electric chair. Next to him stands an executioner in ghoulish makeup. This man is a serious serial killer. What should we do with him? Spare his life or kill him? A boy near me cheers for his death, so the executioner throws a switch and sparks fly. Electricity courses through his body. The serial killer's soul departs to face its eternal judgment, leaving only the fried husk of a man. The executioner grins and speaks again, so you've killed him. Now there's one less serial killer walking around, but you're not safe yet. 
there's still so much sin in the world. Worse than that, there's another serial killer, an even more vicious serial killer, and he's out to get you. I won't read the rest of the article because it's frankly terrifying. Uh, They walk him through what they call the rooms of sin, in which there are macabre scenes of things like teenagers uh, having the remorse after premarital sex or drunk driving and other things that sent them to hell. So then he talks about going through these rooms of sin and entering a graveyard where they go into what they called the elevator. I'm always good. I'm always here for a good pun. Uh, a steel cage in a tiny room that rumbles as though we're plummeting thousands of feet, and it takes us down into hell, the elevator, where it opens up, and we see uh, the gruesome scene of Christ on the cross and what He did for us. And then they sort of force a terrified decision out of us: which one do we want? Do we want to go to hell, or do we want to embrace Jesus? This experience is called Hell House. Some of the articles describe it this way. Well, this was, I think, an own po- its own poster. This is an experience that promises to scare the hell out of you. It says, Hell Houses are haunted attractions typically run by evangelical Protestant churches or parachurch organizations, and they're designed to act as moral instruction, one says. Another article says, Hell Houses are a cross between a haunted house and a timeshare sales pitch. So this is some of the reactions of people who found themselves invited into this experience, shall we say. Now, this is one way that churches have decided to do what we call evangelism. Evangel just means, you know, the good news, to be one that brings a message of goodness. Angel and you, evangel, the messenger of good news, a message of good things, good tidings. We read two passages, one in which Jesus, at the end of his ministry, at the end of his, after his resurrection, death, resurrection, he's about to ascend. He's on a mountain and he tells the disciples to go into the world and to make disciples of all nations. In other words, go out, tell them, make them followers like you as well. Be evangelistic, share the good news. And then Peter, the early church, you didn't hear the background before um, in Acts chapter two, but this is the passage if you're familiar with it, where the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and they're speaking in strange languages, but the languages are ones that other people understand. And all of a sudden, all the barriers are broken down and people can understand that God loves them and has done something special for them through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And there's a new power in this community and they're sharing things and, and gifts are pouring out and they're loving one another. And everyone's like, what is happening? Are they all drunk? And Peter has to explain them. No, they're not drunk. This amazing thing is happening because of what Jesus has done. Let me tell you about it. And then he preaches a sermon to them to explain to them what they're seeing. They see one level of things. They're like, strange things, miracles, but also maybe they're drunk. I don't have any explanation for it. And he explains to them what they can't understand with their eyes or hear with their ears. He explains to them what is going on underneath the surface. So we've been talking this fall about our three virtues of welcome, worship, and witness, and we are going to do three parts on witness. Last week I suggested that it was really important to not just think about witness as something we do, but rather that God himself, through Jesus, is witnessing to his own life, to his own work, to his own salvation that happens independent of us and cannot be frustrated by us or by any force in the world. In fact, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus. He will build his kingdom. He will renew all things in shalom. He has the victory already, and he will spread it to every last inch of this cosmos. And what we are called to do is to 
have eyes to see and ears to hear by God's grace what he's doing so that we can be witnesses to it. Not responsible for it necessarily, but witnesses to what God is doing. And I suggested that the best way to think about witness in terms of something we participate in is that we witness in word and in deed. That we can show God's kingdom, we can embody the kingdom, we can be a part of the kingdom being demonstrated to people, shared with people through the things that we do, and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And then today, also, in the things that we say, in the words that we share about this message, this language, this description of what God is doing in the world. And that the good news from the very early speeches in the New Testament, Jesus' very first sermon, it's always about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God that is healing and renewing and reconciling all things, that is filling all things with his life and his love, that will make all things flourish. It's a good news of a new realm, a new citizenship, a new nationality, a new thing that we get to be a part of that transcends all of the identities that we can pull from this world in our own lives. That this is the good news of what God is doing and continues to do, and we get to witness to it, and we even get to enter into it and describe it to other people and say, you're invited to. You're invited to come in. Oh, they put up borders in that country, and they're not going to let you in? Guess what? This one, there are no borders. Just come on in. You pass through the waters of baptism, and now you belong. And yeah, we'll spend our whole lives trying to figure out what it means and how to live it out faithfully, as we'll see. I'm going to kind of reflect on both of these passages and just kind of try to pull some things out for us as we think about witness and about the challenge of using our words with our neighbors in this day and age to talk about the good news, to talk about Jesus and his kingdom. It's hard. Is anyone, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. I'll leave it rhetorical. If I ask you to raise your hand, if you'd like love talking about Jesus to your secular neighbors, there'll only be a couple hands raised and God bless you, because God's given you a special gift. For most of us, it's hard. It's awkward. We don't know what to say. We know that all claims to truth, and especially absolute truth now, are, are received as power plays. Or even perhaps somehow, if you try to say something, it could be turned into hate speech. Or people think we're just awash in misinformation and disinformation. And who knows what you're saying? Don't really know. And so we have these options like just to be silent, to take a truth that we've been handed to share and to silence it, to suppress the truth, to say, ah, it doesn't feel really politically correct to say Jesus is king. I just won't talk about it. Another option that people take is to kind of spew, not just to be silent, but to spew their feelings in the air, emoting everything. Well, this is my truth. I'm going to tell you about it. Deal with it. It's what, you know, in the Christian version, this is what God did for me today. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be blessed, you know, or whatever. Spewing out stuff. But there's also this option called speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Sometimes it's called speaking soberly, like kind of quietly, but with weight to people. Again, we might call it witnessing or evangelism for us. And the thing is, is that we are called to this. We see it in both of our passages that as a church, as a community of faith, but also as individuals, we are called to witness. We are called to share what we have. And what we have 
believe it or not, is good news. It's not bad news. It's not spooky news. It's not horrifying news. It's not terrifying news. It's good news. It's good news the way that if you found an amazing restaurant or speakeasy, you'd be rude not to tell your other New Yorker friends about it. And that's, I'm just telling you, you need to tell me about it if you have some of those. We have good news that it was rude not to share with people. And I know it's messy. It will be messy. We're in a culture where truth is debated and truth is seen as a power play and truth is confusing and no one even knows what the truth is. And yet we are called to share this truth about Jesus and who he is with people. That's what these early Christians did in Acts chapter 2. They get together. They have some power. They don't even know what's happening. We call it tongues, but of course it just means languages like your mother tongue. And so they're speaking. They don't know how to speak Median or Parth or whatever these, I, I got those wrong. Those are not real languages, but there's this description of all these languages in Acts chapter 2. And they're like, I don't know how to speak that one, but they suddenly are speaking it and people are hearing, people are understanding. There's something that happens in the communal life when people are witnessing God's life and his power amongst themselves that people start to understand. They start to get intrigued. They're like, what is this? What's happening over there? I want to know what that's about. And then someone like Peter does his best to explain it to them. That's why it says you will always be called. Jesus says until the very end of this age, until the new heavens and the new earth, until my kingdom is full, until there's no more sin in the world, you will be my witnesses. And so you need to always go to all the nations, continually discipling, evangelizing, witnessing. And you do that, I'll get to this in a second, through baptism and through teaching them to obey everything. But why do we always have to keep this up? Why is the church constantly doing this? Of course, it's because not everyone knows. Of course, it's because the kingdom isn't here. It's of course, because not everyone knows that the news is good. But it's also this. We see it in Matthew 28. It said, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them and they saw him and they worshiped him They saw him, they worshiped him, even as we're doing this morning, but some doubted. I think this is an important way to think about, to begin to tweak how we think about witnessing, which is all we're going to do for the next few minutes, is think about a different way of imagining how we can be people that witness in word. And it starts with this acknowledgement, it's right there in the gospel, that we are always, each of us, As a church and as individuals, we're always a mix of faith and doubt. They saw him, they worshiped him, and yet they doubted. It's as if they needed one another, they needed the community, they need this experience of worship, of pointing to one another, like, no, 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 it's Jesus, worship him. And they're like, really? And there's doubt, but they're intrigued, and their doubt starts to get sort of, they doubt their doubts a little bit, they begin to see worship around them. And this is what we always need. This is why I love these virtues of welcome, worship, witness, because they feed into one another. And sometimes they go across their lines and their, and their borders and they blend together. But in this, you see that worship itself is a form of witness. And I hope that's good news for you this morning, because when I talk about evangelism or witnessing, you think, you're thinking about yourself and your neighbor. You're thinking about the person you're most terrified to find out you're a Christian. And that's okay. I want you to think about that as well. But what I want you to have good news is that when you worship, you are not just worshiping God, you are witnessing to one another. 
You're witnessing to our neighbors that hear us sing and walk by and see the open door. You are witnessing to all of us who still are a mixture of faith and doubt and need to have the good news preached and proclaimed in our vicinity and around us. We need to see it in one another when we're struggling. Again, our door is open. Praises are sung through the windows. People are invited and welcomed. New community is being formed across differences and divisions. You're generous. You share with one another. You serve. You love. You're learning new language that wouldn't come naturally to you from the scriptures and from Christianity. Just this morning, you say things like, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You say this to one another. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You will pray. The Lord be with you, you will say. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. This is the gospel, and you are witnessing to it with your words this morning. And we are witnessing to Jesus, who is always testifying, always bringing the kingdom, always present, and we just need eyes to see and ears to hear. He says to them, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to me. He tells them later, I'm with you always, everywhere you go, even until the very end, I will never not be with you. And so we're witnessing to Jesus himself, who is here and who is with us as we gather and as we scatter. And this is why I've tried to set up a context in which you think about witness a little more corporately. It is individual, but for it to be any effective, to be effective at all individually, it needs to be embodied corporately together as a congregation. It needs to be ongoing, week by week, moment by moment. It needs to never end until the end of the age. Again, Jesus said it, go and make disciples of all nations. How do you make disciples? How do you make followers? How do you make people that are committed and and belong to the kingdom and want to also be witnesses to it? Here's how he says to do it. Go and make disciples of all nations by, first, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when someone first hears the good news, the one thing they're asked to do to enter in is to become a baby again, to get washed, to be naked as it were, to start over, to have baby mind, beginner's mind, teach me, I'm open. And then after you baptize, they get their citizenship papers, they belong to the family, into the new kingdom, the citizenship. Then you begin the long, lifelong work of teaching them to observe and live out everything that Jesus has commanded. So witness is an entrance and it is ongoing work of transformation, a training that lasts a lifetime. Why? Because we always have that doubt mixed with the faith. We're always room to grow. And this is why it takes a church properly to witness Because what we're witnessing to is not just that I get to go to heaven when I die, but that God is reconciling and renewing all things that are broken and torn apart, starting with his most precious creation, which is human beings. He is tearing down the walls. He is saying, you want to be reconciled to God, and so you're reconciled to one another. And now as you begin to learn how to live it out in this new way, living alternate ways in the world for the sake of the world, you become a demonstration to a watching world. You become the good news, a community unlike any other, not made from man or tribe or blood or race or class or any time in history, but instead made of God's own love and spirit through Jesus. And so if we experience this good news, we receive it from one another as people witness to it or show us 
in particular ways, ordinary ways sometimes, Christ's own service to us, his love of us, his words of tenderness, sometimes his words of challenge. As we experience this together, we're experiencing and witnessing to the good news of his kingdom. Leslie Newbigin, who you may have heard, we've quoted him quite a bit, was a missionary in India, but then he came back to the West and he realized that the West needed to be treated like a missionary land, not as what it formerly was understood to be as Christendom. And he said this, I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life, so the number one thing that we need if we want to have an impact in the world, is the Christian congregation. Consider this for a second. It's a very striking argument. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. To be in the body of Christ, to do all the ordinary things you're trying to do here of learning to live it out, to learn out what we, to live out what we worship, that you are learning to embody that, then you become a witness together to a watching world. You become the center of the kingdom, the fullness, it says. God fills all in all, but the church is the fullness of him. This is the most direct, clear place for people to witness God's ongoing work, the good news that he is still alive, he is still working, he is renewing and reconciling all things, and you are the proof positive of that, even with your mix of doubt and faith, of failure and of victory. Jesus says, if you will go out and try to continue to embody this, if you will be a witness to it in your corporate life and with your words to one another in worship, with your words to one another around the neighborhood, if you will share the good news and talk about it, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so I just want to close with a couple of recommendations and a picture. What if we thought of evangelism not as coercive, kind of like that hell house, the haunted house where they show you what hell is like and try to scare the hell out of you so that you'll run terrified into the arms of bleeding Jesus. But what if instead we had a very humble, joyful, corporate type of evangelism? If we thought of ourselves not as gurus that have all the answers for this ignorant world, but instead as guides that Jesus led up on a mountain in this passage and they didn't understand it all. They worshiped and they doubted, but there was something bigger than them and they were pointing to it. And then they were sent out to talk about it and say, I don't know everything, but I know that this happened. And I know that this is true. And I know that this is still happening in these communities of faith that are popping up in city after city and neighborhood after neighborhood. Can I guide you to what I found? One of the very first people that shared the gospel, he said, I am just a hungry person a beggar showing someone else where I found bread. I love that picture. To not be gurus, but guides. To not understand ourselves as possessors of the truth, like in our back pocket, and here it is, I'm gonna give it to you. But instead as those possessed by the truth, 
that is beyond all human understanding. What might a winsome evangelism look like if we have this quiet confidence that Jesus is taking care of all authorities, all trends in the culture, every city, whether it looks like faith is going to hell in a handbasket or whether it's growing, he's in charge of everything. And all we have to do is witness to his work because it's good news and it brings life and healing and restoration and purpose. It brings faith and hope and love. Wouldn't that be a little easier to tell your friends about? You don't even have to explain the whole thing or all the doctrines that exist in the world, but instead you're inviting them to come to a place where they'll be accepted, and if they pass through the waters of baptism, they will then be surrounded by guides for the rest of their lives to be taught how to become a flourishing, living, alive person in community. Do you know the origins of Halloween? There's a lot of debate about it, but I'm just going to tell you the truth, okay? Halloween, hallows, means saints, all saints day, all saints, all hallows evening. It's the night before all saints day. It's just a church tradition. And as we'll do next Sunday for all saints Sunday, we'll celebrate the fact that we're a part of this communion of the saints that you'll, that you've already confessed. We belong to this innumerable number of people that have died, that have run the race and to people all around the nation of the world today of every tribe and tongue and nation. We belong to this family of faith that is running the race. And so what they would do is around Halloween, because they're celebrating that all of these people have victory over death that we no longer have to fear. And so they would do things. No one thought that the devil looked like a red a person in a red jumpsuit with a fork tail. That's making fun of the devil. That's all it was. And not because they weren't afraid of the devil back in the medieval times or of demons. They believed in all these things way more than we do in the secular West. But because they believed that Jesus brought good news, that he brought life after death. And so... They were, they were able to teach their kids to go, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, devil, you can't get us. We belong to Jesus. We're a part of his kingdom. There's a truth you can't see. It's bigger and more beautiful and better than anything out there that tries to scare me in the world. And so they built their cathedrals. On the outside, they put all these goofy-looking gargoyles and scary little things, scaring away the spirits. But when you came inside, you'd have stained glass. You'd have pictures of what God had done. You'd have embrace. You'd have good news. You'd have psalms. You'd have singing. You'd have incense. You'd have all this beauty. And so what if this isn't a wonderful picture of what it means to witness? That rather than a hell house, we understand ourselves to be a heaven house. That the world is scary, the streets are dangerous, there's all kinds of things to be afraid of out there, but nothing, nothing can threaten, much less conquer, Christ the King and his kingdom. It's a place of life and light and salvation, and you belong to it. You can invite others in where they can witness in fullness God's ongoing work of redemption you are God's mission. We are God's mission. We are also God's news, good news. Would you witness to it today as we continue to worship and this week as you go out and next week as we invite our friends and neighbors from the marathon to come and be a part of what God is doing in and through this church. May God give us this grace to witness to him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.